0: July 20th, 2017, David Johnson, Canada's governor general, was all over the British news. It was a big deal. And what was it that caused this this media storm that swept the nation? Well, he was walking down a set of stairs, and uh, those stairs seemed to be a bit slippery to him, and so he reached out and, quote, lightly touched the elbow of the elderly lady walking beside him. The problem... That elderly lady just so happened to be uh, Elizabeth II, the Queen of England. And protocol says you do not touch the Queen. He was a commoner. She is royalty. That's not acceptable. As North Americans in a democratic society, we're we're not overly familiar with that kind of protocol. Protocol. We're not accustomed to uh, meeting people who are considered above our position in life. And, and so um, that's odd for us. But if you were to go over to England and be fortunate enough to have an opportunity to meet the queen, um, you would first be briefed on proper protocol. Here's what you can and cannot do. Here's how this is going to work. Um, you must arrive before the queen and you may not leave until after she is gone. Um, if the queen stands, you stand. When you meet the queen, um, you stand not, not in a line up with those there to meet her, but in a semicircle. Um, you do not shake her hand. You bow or curtsy. And uh, if she reaches to shake your hand, you may shake her hand. You will get two shakes, not one, not three. If you're really forced, and you have the opportunity to dine with the queen, um, just know she's going to spend the first course of the meal speaking to the more important guest on her right, and the second get course of the meal speaking to the guest on her left. And if she puts her clutch purse onto the table, choose your next bite carefully. It will be the last bite of the meal. Uh, it's over. Likewise, if you're talking with her and she switches her purse from one hand to the next, your conversation is over. Um, she calls the shots. She is royalty. You approach her on her terms. Now, Speaking of the queen, um, we can have this conversation about social constructs and human dignity and if it's ever right for one human to demand another human bow before them. Uh, But those conversations quickly evaporate if we change that scenario from from one human to another to a creation meeting its creator, to a, a finite being coming into the presence of the infinite Even more, a fallen and sinful being attempting to approach the very definition and standard of goodness and righteousness and justice. This next section of Exodus we've titled, Approaching the Unapproachable. That's what God is to us. He is unapproachable. And there's protocol in approaching God. There's a right way and a wrong way, and and here more than anywhere else, he gets to set the terms. He defines the protocol that we follow. He gets to call the shots. Turn with me your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible on you, our ushers are coming forward. Um, Just raise your hand. They would love to put a Bible into your hands. Um, Let's just be honest. Uh, Nobody cares or nobody should care um, what I think the proper protocol is for approaching God. It simply doesn't matter my opinion. That's not the point. We want to hear from God on this. We need to hear from God on this. And so we want you to have God's word Open on your lap, and uh, if you don't have a Bible at home or a Bible you can easily understand, take this one. It's our gift to you. We want you to have it. Uh, but Exodus 19 is where we'll spend uh, our morning here together. And it brings us at long last to Mount Sinai, the holy mountain where God meets with his people. It's here that God begins to lay out for them the first time. Uh, here is how you approach me here is the divine protocol and it's terrifying so we're going to move into uh, chapter 19 but maybe before we do let's pray father help us we are unworthy to stand before you you are unapproachable you are infinite and we are finite you are perfect and we are sullied with sin. God, use me this morning. Humble me this morning that I might be uh, a faithful vessel of your truth. God, that together we might tremble at your word. We might come humbly before this passage and be changed by it. God, that we would know you rightly, that we would approach you rightly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look first at verses 1 to 4 as the Lord relays the the foundational principle. You only approach the Lord by grace. Chapter 19, verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out to the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai Let's just stop right there, right in the middle of this amazing passage. We can't miss this first principle. It's grace. It's grace. It had been three months, the third new moon, since Israel had left Egypt. They had been wandering in the wilderness The Lord had miraculously provided for them bread and water and meat. He had rescued them out of the hands of the Amalekites. And now, finally, they've come to the foot of Mount Sinai and they've set up camp. This brings Moses full circle. If you remember, um, more than 40 years before this, uh, he was a shepherd in Midian. He had ran away from Egypt after killing the Egyptian slave driver in fear. He ran to Midian and he was a shepherd there for 40 years. And it was as a shepherd that he had wandered by this very place, Mount Sinai, also called Mount Horeb. And as he passed by, he saw a bush that was on fire but was not consumed. And he was curious, so he walked up to the bush to examine it. And out from the bush, the Lord spoke to him sent him back to Egypt as his messenger, as the rescuer for his people. In Exodus 3.12, the Lord said to Moses from the burning bush, but I will be with you, and this will be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God or worship God on this mountain. You're coming back here, Moses, and here they are. Now, the exact location of Mount Sinai is a topic of great debate. Um, If we have that map, um, you'll see um, the the typical, the uh, traditional location is down here in the bottom of Mount Sinai, the the orange star. Um, That location uh, has been just kind of spoken of as Mount Sinai for many years. Um, The problem with it is, uh, basically, it was just arbitrarily chosen. It was, by all Uh, traditional accounts. It it was Constantine's mother who just kind of declared, here it is, and so the Catholic Church put a monastery there. Um, But of course, that declaration came about 2,000 years after uh, Moses, and uh, there was really no credible reason why it would be that mountain and not any other there's a lot of talk today about the new location of Mount Sinai uh, in modern Saudi Arabia. Um, that's where the green star is over on the other side of the Gulf of Aquaba. Um, and uh, there's a lot of talk about that. If you want to go on YouTube and search the, the real Mount Sinai, you'll see a few videos there. And, and they're, they're quite convincing, um, but I find them problematic as well. Um, one of the problems being is they move the crossing of the Red Sea from up here on the top of the Gulf of Suez, where we would surmise that it is, they would say it happened down at the bottom of the Gulf of Aqaba, that they crossed there. That's where the Lord parted the waters. Um, The problem with that is um, you've got about a 300-kilometer journey uh, from Pithom, where they started across to the Gulf of Aqaba, uh, and that would have to happen in three days. And that seems Problematic to me. Um, They would be three days covering those three hundred kilometers, and then two months and twenty-eight days going from the other side of the Gulf of Aquaba over to Mount Sinai. Um, The other issue I have with these these videos is is they just seem to prove too much. They find every little detail from Exodus, and here's this, and here's this, and here's this, and everything falls so perfectly into place. One explorer even records finding ashes from the altar. 4,000-year-old ashes? I just don't think so. Um, I, I don't expect to find, after 4,000 years, palm trees and springs in the same places. I think those dry up and, and move and die. I, I don't expect to see a mountain that's burnt on the top still bearing the marks of the Lord being there. Um, so I'm, I'm a little unimpressed by those Videos as well. Um, my position on Mount Sinai is we don't know where it is, and I think that's probably on purpose. I don't know if it would be good for us to know where it is. I suspect it's somewhere in the Sinai Peninsula, there, possibly near that traditional location, um, but we don't know. And frankly, it doesn't matter. We know what's important. Um, God has recorded for us what we need to know, and uh, and so here, Israel. Camps at this mountain, wherever it is. And and honestly, it's not the mountain that's significant. It's the Lord's presence on the mountain. Uh, And they're going to camp here for almost a year. um, The next 59 chapters of Scripture through the end of the book of Exodus into Numbers 10 when they finally leave. And so um, for our series through Exodus, we're done traveling. We're going to be here for a while. Moses went up the mountain the first time and the Lord called to him saying, this is what you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. Um, House of Jacob was just another name for the people of Israel. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Israel, don't forget. Above all else, before we start any other conversation, don't forget, I chose you. I saved you. I rescued you out from Egypt on eagle's wings. What an amazing picture. We've often joked, I don't know if you've watched the Lord of the Rings series, and, uh, and there's these big eagles that come in and, and, they, and they ride on their backs. And we think, well, Why didn't the eagles just show up at the beginning and take them right to Mordor? They could have skipped the whole walk and almost dying and all of that. Wouldn't that have been great? Um, that's what the Lord did. Uh, he rescued Egypt or Israel on, on eagle's wings and just brought them out. But before we go any further, before I give you any laws, any commands, remember I've already rescued you. I've already brought you near to myself before anything else. The first protocol to approaching the unapproachable is that it's by grace. It has to be. You don't call up the queen and and request an appearance. She calls you so much more with the Lord. Exodus 6-7, he told Israel through Moses, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. He's saying, I chose you. I'll do it. He is about to tell them to obey him. He's about to give them a numerous commands, including the Ten Commandments. But if if there's any danger, if they're prone, and they are, to to think of their position before him as being dependent on their performance, he's setting the record straight. It's not based on your obedience. It's not based on your keeping the law that I'm about to give you. And, and, And he reminds them, I saved you before I even gave you the law. I brought you to myself. I rescued you. It's grace, grace, grace. Psalm 65, 4, Blessed is the one that you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. And it's the same today. John 15, where Jesus talks about the vine and the branches and, and every true branch that's connected to the vine will bear good fruit. And he talks about producing fruit in that passage. But fifteen sixteen, he makes it clear. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So go and bear fruit, go and do these things, go and walk in obedience, but you can only do it because I chose you, because I made you my own. So Ephesians 1, Paul in this this great prayer that he prays this this song of worship he says blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him so how do you approach the unapproachable by grace You don't request an audience with him. He calls you. It's an invitation only. That ought to be simultaneously incredibly humbling and freeing. You did not find him and seek him. He he chose you. He revealed himself to you. I know we look at it from our experience. We say, but I remember when I started to wonder and, and seek after him. I remembered that day. And the Bible tells us there's no one who seeks God. That happened in your heart because God was moving before that. Because God awakened your heart to begin to see Him. It's by grace first. So rest in that. Puts us in this place of freedom and security and saying, He chose me. He saved me and everything else from here on out. The commands to be obeyed. They flow out of this preemptive grace. They flow out of the fact that he's rescued me. But that's not the end of the protocol. There is more. He says, I saved you. I brought you near. It's by grace. Now come near this way. The pressure's off, but we still need to pay attention to how we come near And he says we approach the Lord by grace, but then as we look at verses 5 to 8, we approach the Lord through obedience. So look at these verses with me, chapter 19, starting in verse 5, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession Among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so Moses came and called the elders of the people, and he set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. God says, I chose you. I rescued you on eagle's wings. I've brought you out of Egypt from death to life. Now, therefore, because of that, you will obey me. Keep my covenant and my commandments, and you will be three things. My treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. So he calls them to himself. He makes them his people. And then he says, This is how my people live. This is how you are to live as my people in obedience. There are two kinds of covenants, two kinds of contracts that were made uh, in the ancient Near East. Um, There were bilateral covenants and unilateral covenants and and they functioned differently. They're made differently. Uh, A bilateral covenant happened when when two people of equal power, typically two kings or two wealthy uh, landowners um, of equal status would come to a, a mutually beneficial agreement. We will live at peace with one another. You will supply grain to me and I'll supply lumber to you and we'll have this agreement The other kind is a unilateral covenant. It's called a suzerain vassal covenant. Suzerain meant ruler to to vassal, to a a subject. Um, This would happen, it was a a one-way covenant. When a king would take over another nation and he would decimate their army and break down the walls of their cities and, and their life was in his hand, then he would make a covenant with them and say, you will pay me this amount of tribute every year. You will supply this amount of grain to my army. This is how it's going to be. That's the kind of covenant the Lord makes. It's not a back and forth covenant. The Lord doesn't need us to scratch his back. He says, this is what's going to happen. I am the sovereign Lord. I rescued you out of slavery. Now you will live this way. Down in verse eight, uh, Moses relays this message to the people and they haven't even heard the demands yet. I know the the grammar, there's a little confusing. They say all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Um, And some say this is referring back to the Abrahamic covenant, but but the Abrahamic covenant has nothing to do. There's nothing to obey. It's just God promising, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, I think they're looking forward. They're saying whatever God is going to say, we'll do it. Whatever the demands, we're in. Now, if you've read ahead, You know they have some difficulty keeping that promise, um, to put it mildly. But at least here, the heart is right. The intent is there. And the Lord says, if you will keep them to the extent that you walk in these ways, you will be my treasured possession. Think about that. What's your treasured possession? What do you own that gives you great joy, that that you meticulously care for, that you keep perfectly safe and secure, that you bring out maybe on on special occasions, and yet you you love to display it, to show it off. God says, as you obey me, you'll be my treasured possession. And then you'll be a kingdom of priests. This this is an amazing statement. Um, Now, the the Levite priesthood, as we know it uh, later on, has not been developed yet, um, but they know what a priest is. It's all around them. It's one who explained how do you honor God. It's a go-between, between between God and man. Um, How do you get right with God? Israel would live this obedient covenant life to the Lord and he would make them a kingdom of priests, a whole nation of priests to the world. This is their missionary mandate. This is is the, the Israelite Great Commission right here. You will be a kingdom of priests, bringing the world to the Lord. They will see in you how to be made right with God, and they will come. And finally, he says they'd be a holy nation. Holy means set apart, separate. They're different from the rest of the world That's the theme of the the whole book of Leviticus as it expands and and lays out these laws. And Leviticus 19.2 says, Speak to the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. It's partly why there's so many peculiar laws. We read through Leviticus and we say, God, why? Why can't they wear clothes of mixed fabrics? Why can't they grow fields with two different kinds of of crop in them? Why can they only eat certain foods? That's weird, God. That's exactly the point. They were given peculiar laws to make them a peculiar people, a people like none other. And so when, when other nations around would say, why do you do that? Because we're different. Because we belong to God and that's what he said to do. So there's no, there's no secret health benefits that we need to uncrack in Leviticus. Uh, it's a matter of making them a strange people, unmistakably belonging to God. So yes, they were to approach the Lord by grace, but they were also to come through obedience. That's how they would live out what it meant to be the people of God. That's how they would fulfill his purpose in them and and be what he had rescued them to be. Obedience matters. This hasn't changed. A lot changed from the old covenant to the new covenant that we live in today. Um, God no longer works through an ethnic people in the way that he did. Rather, we who are gathered by grace in Christ Jesus, Christians from all kinds of different backgrounds, different ethnicities. Um, we are the new people of God. Listen to what Peter writes um, to this mix of believers scattered throughout Asia Minor. He says in 1 Peter 2:9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Sound familiar? He says, You're the new Israel. You're it. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Church, we're the people of God. We are to be his treasured possession in this age. His kingdom of priests, his holy nation set apart different. Do you live like it? Now we're not. Different as we obey old covenant commands. We're not different by the kinds of crops we grow or the kind of clothes we wear, but because of the holiness in us, because of his sanctifying work, because of the things that we say and the way that we live. Are you living out what God has saved you to be? How do you approach the Lord? How do you come near to God? Yes, by grace, but that doesn't negate obedience we still come through the path of obedience. Psalm 24, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, who does not swear deceitfully. Hebrews 12:14, we looked at just last week, strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We're saved by grace, but our salvation finds its completion through God working obedience in us. Don't think personal holiness, don't think obedience is a small thing. Don't let let grace ruin your understanding of obedience. It's a big deal. We're commended to it. This God who has saved us, who's rescued us, said, now, now live this way. Work for it. Root out the sin in your life. Find it. Be, be violent against it. Obedience matters. We approach God through obedience, and there, there is no other way. Thirdly, we approach God by grace, through obedience, with fear. This is sorely lacking, I think, in our understanding of God today. Um, We have gotten very comfortable with God in a way that I think maybe we should not be. Let me read verses 8 through 18. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may believe you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain And so Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. And on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. And so all the people in the camp trembled. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. So the end of verse eight, Moses goes back up the mountain a second time, telling the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord says, Go back down with a message for Israel. Get ready. I'm coming. I'm coming down. Picture this moment. Put put yourself in the shoes of an Israelite. You've seen God work these mighty wonders. You've seen the river turn to blood. You've seen the flies, the boils, the darkness, the hail and fire that fell from the sky. You watched the Red Sea part and come crashing down again, killing thousands and now Moses said, He's coming. You're going to meet this God. If that doesn't scare you, you're crazy. This is terrifying. And they have three days to consecrate themselves, to make themselves ready. And this would include washing their clothes. Most likely, bathing is assumed in there. They're not to engage in sexual activity, even with a spouse, not because it was wrong, but because this was to be a somber time of preparation. And even then, they were to set boundaries around the mountain, saying, don't go any further. Don't don't touch the mountain. If anyone goes up and touches the mountain, they will be killed. If anyone lacks respect, if anyone lacks a proper fear of the Lord, they are to be shot with a bow or stone." And with those preparations in place, they wait three days, somber, quiet, nervous. On the morning of the third day, there's a thick cloud covering the mountain. There's thunder and lightning. I like that, that they translate that into plural. There's thunders and lightnings happening. And then finally, finally, what they had been waiting for, the trumpet blast. Gather at the mountain. Do they gather? No. No, they tremble. Moses has to go and get them and bring them to the mountain. They're scared. Verse 18, the Lord descended on the mountain in fire and smoke went up into the sky. No doubt children are crying. Grown men are trembling. I don't know if you saw any of the footage from the earthquakes in in California this last week. People flooding out of stores and movie theaters, hiding under desks as these earthquakes shake. That's, That's just a little bit of shaking. That's nothing compared to what's happening at Sinai. They would have been terrified, and rightly so. But why? Why all of this, Lord? Why not just show up floating on a soft white cloud as a nice grandfatherly figure? Isn't that the God we all know and love from TV? Isn't that who God is? No, no, it's not. No, he is terrifying this God that they worship, that we worship. They need to fear the Lord. This is not a Wizard of Oz situation where, where he is actually meek and mild and small and weak and he, and he puts on this big display to cover up his insecurity. Not at all. No, God is graciously concealing himself to a large degree. He's letting just a glimmer of his glory shine through so that he doesn't consume and destroy Israel. Later in Exodus, he'll tell Moses No man shall see me and live. He's a terrifying God. Listen how the Bible describes him elsewhere. Isaiah 10, verse 33. Behold, the Lord God of hosts, that's armies, will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height, will be hewn down, the lofty will be brought low. Micah 7.17 says of the enemies of God, they will lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds and they shall turn in dread to the Lord our God and they shall be in fear of you. Even the prophet Isaiah, as he is brought into the Lord's presence it says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple and, and he too speaks of thunder. In Isaiah 6, 5, he cries out, woe is me for I am lost. I am undone. I am unraveled in the presence of God because I dwell amidst a people of unclean lips and I'm a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. How can I live? Hebrews 10.31 simply puts, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's terrifying. Even Jesus, Matthew 10.28, do not fear those who kill the body. I don't know, is anyone here scared of people who kill your body? That's a big deal. That's a scary thing. Jesus says, don't don't fear those who would simply kill the body. Fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Don't take God lightly. One of the protocols of approaching God is that we come to him in fear. We respect and honor him. Now, there is an unhealthy fear. A boy that... Fears his drunken, angry father because he might be hit unpredictably. That's not the kind of fear we're talking about. No, God is good. And actually it is his goodness in part that causes us to fear or should cause us to fear. Because he is ferociously good and just and and we're corrupt. So we're right to fear God and avoid evil. We're right to say, no, I will not run after that wickedness because God scares me. It's a fearful thing to fall into his judgment. But even in confidence of his grace, even knowing that we are his chosen people whom he has rescued, that he is for us and not against us, we don't fear his wrath, and yet we ought to have this sense of trembling before him. We ought to wonder and marvel at the magnitude of this God. Don't miss the opening of the Lord's Prayer. Even Jesus says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, feared, revered, honored be your name. Do we fear God rightly? Do we have a sense of the magnitude and the awesomeness of his power? That's the God that we stand before When we pray at dinner or in the morning, do we fear the Lord? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Because everything else falls into proper perspective when we fear God rightly. We tremble before Him as we should. And that brings us to the fourth protocol here in this passage. We approach God by grace, through obedience, with fear, and only in a mediator. Let me read verses 19 to 25. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai, on the top of the mountain, And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up and the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord and look and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to the Mount Sinai For you yourself have warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. And so Moses went down to the people and told them. So even after all this preparation and consecrating themselves, having been rescued by God's grace, pledging their obedience. The time has finally come. The Lord has descended on the mountain in fire and smoke. The mountain itself is shaking. Imagine this scene. The trumpet sound is getting louder and louder. And God calls Moses, come back up the mountain a third time. And he's told, go back down. Tell the people again what you already told them. They may not come up. Warn them. Don't go past the barriers. Don't try to see the Lord and make me angry and have my wrath break out against them. Moses replies in verse 23, they're not coming up. You already told us to set limits. They can't come up. But the Lord says, no, go back down and warn them again. Say it again. He's seen their continual unfaithfulness. He knows the pride in their hearts. You can bring up Aaron, your right-hand man, the the representative of the priests, but do not let the priests or the people come up or many will die. God is not casual about his presence, his holiness. Mostly familiar, this Similar idea in, in 2 Samuel 6, the ark of the Lord is being transported on a cart. The, the ark of the covenant where God's presence dwells and, and as it's moving along, the ox stumbles and the cart bounces and is, is in, the, the ark is at risk of falling into the mud and a young man named Uzzah puts out his hand to steady the ark and the Lord kills him right there. We're shocked. How could God do that? No, how could Uzzah do that? How dare he assume that his sinful hand was cleaner than the mud? How dare he breach the protocol that God had set and approach God's presence wrongly? Don't let this people come up into my presence or many will die. Why? Why? God had chosen them by grace. He had rescued them. He had prepared them. Uh, He had brought them through this process of consecration. Shouldn't they now be able to confidently approach God? No. No, they're not able to. As a sinful people, they cannot stand in the presence of God. Even with all of these other things in place, they would be consumed. The righteous wrath of God would break out against them. They can only approach God in the mediator, in a representative who would stand in their place. But it begs the question is is Moses really any different? And in some ways, he is significant, His, his unmatched humility, his obedience to the Lord, his relationship with the Lord, all those are significant. But but at bottom, no. No, Moses isn't really any different. He's a descendant of the line of Adam, that is to say human. And as a descendant of Adam, he's born like every one of us, corrupted at our core with sin, with a heart that is turned away from honoring God, and leads to actions of rebellion against God. Moses, like every one of us, is is completely unable to stand before God. But Moses, by God's grace, was chosen, given this privilege to be this living metaphor, a sign, a foreshadowing of something greater, of someone greater, a mediator who would come, who would open the way, to God, yes, fully human and yet shockingly not born of Adam, born of a virgin, with God Himself as his father. In fact, it was God Himself descending into human flesh, coming as the perfect mediator, the perfect representative, the perfect go-between from between God and man, both God and man himself yes, completely human, but also completely holy, without sin, able to stand in the presence of God. More than that, by his death on the cross, he would pay the penalty for our sin, would consecrate us and cleanse us much more than bathing or washing of clothes could ever do, but to make us holy so that in him, we might stand in the presence of this God as well. And not just on Mount Sinai, not just on the the earthly representation of his presence, but on a much greater mountain, the true and heavenly presence of God. The book of Hebrews unpacks this beautifully. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Um, Just stick with me there for a little bit. We're uh, going to stay there uh, and come back to it a few times, so don't close it. Uh, Hebrews is an amazingly rich book and draws heavily from the book of Exodus but Hebrews 12 the author unpacks these things uh, starting in verse 18 I'll give you a minute to flip there Um, come to the end of the books of Paul um, before the books of the general epistles you'll find Hebrews in the middle Hebrews 12, verse 18 For you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire, and darkness, and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Does this sound familiar? He's talking about Sinai. He's talking about Exodus 19. But you have come. Remember, he started, you did not come to this kind of mountain, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, Inaugurated here on Mount Sinai, I pointed forward to in, in hope of what the new covenant would fully accomplish. It was an earthly representation of a heavenly reality. And we stand in the new covenant. We stand with access not just to God on Mount Sinai, but to God in Mount Zion, the heavenly presence. And I love this last phrase about the the blood of Abel. You see, the, the blood of Abel, Adam and Eve's son, murdered by his brother, spoke about our guilt, our wickedness as humans. The blood of Jesus speaks of our cleansing, our washing, a sacrifice in our place. And so Hebrews. says, Therefore he, that's Jesus, is the mediator, just like Moses was the mediator of the old covenant, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred. That's the death of Jesus in our place. A death has occurred that redeemed them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. That's why in 1 Timothy 2, Paul says, for there is one God. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And Jesus himself, John 14, 6, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is our mediator. Nobody goes up to God without perishing except in the mediator. He goes in our place. Let's go back to Hebrews 12 because he continues with a warning. So we we come to this new mountain, Mount Zion, and we come through a new mediator, the blood of Jesus. But then verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For, and he points back to Sinai, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. So track with me here. The Lord came on Mount Sinai, he shook the earth. And in this earthly display of the heavenly reality, he warned, do not come up outside of the mediator, outside of Moses. And and anyone who refused that warning, anyone who ignored that warning and lacked the fear of the Lord would die. And then in in Hebrews, this this phrase that he promised to shake not only the earth but the heavens, he's quoting from Haggai. Haggai. Haggai was writing to the Jews as they were in exile, reminding them of Mount Sinai and pointing forward to a future reality. Here's the verse from Haggai. He says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. What's he saying? He's saying when God came the first time, he shook the mountain. But he's coming back. And this time he's going to shake the whole earth, the heavens and the earth. His presence will come in a new and bigger way. His presence will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Jesus picks up on this past and future imagery as well. Remember the Lord, in, uh, the Lord said in Exodus, um, they were to consecrate themselves and prepare themselves. In verse 13, they were to gather together. They were to come to the mountain When? when they heard the sound of the trumpet blast. What do you think Jesus is thinking of in Matthew 24 when he says immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with the power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. This is it. It's the second coming. And notice, when Jesus returns, he fulfills all of the imagery of the coming of Yahweh. That's not insignificant. He's no lesser angel, no lesser messenger. He is the Lord, all caps. Exodus, Haggai, Hebrews speak of Yahweh's return and Jesus fulfills it. And after darkness, And shaking with a loud trumpet, he will gather his people and he will bring them into the eternal, final, promised land. It all ties together. Let's go back one last time to Hebrews 12. Hear this warning again. If no one who ignored the first mediator when the mountain shook escaped the penalty of death, Do you think anyone who ignores the true mediator will escape death when the Lord comes again, when he shakes the whole earth? He's coming back. Remember from Matthew, all the tribes of the earth, those who are not his holy nation, those who are not his treasure possession, they will mourn, there will be weeping and fear for those who are not his people. Will you be ready for that coming? Will you be able to approach the Lord by grace, through obedience, with fear, and most importantly, in the mediator, by faith in Jesus? If you go running up to the queen and attempt to give her a high five, you will be escorted out, to put it very gently, If you try to come running up to the Lord, making light of his holiness, forgetting your sinfulness, demanding your way and ignoring his protocol, you will find his wrath. Now God sets these terms for how we approach him. We come to him by grace, through obedience, with fear in the mediator. If you try to backdoor God, if you try to ignore that warning, you will be destroyed. If you'll hear Him, if you'll follow this protocol, you will be His treasured possession, His kingdom of priests, His holy nation. So I invite the worship team to come back up. Let's take a few moments this morning uh, before we approach the Lord in communion to just consider again these things. Take some time to, to recognize His grace, to examine your own obedience, to remember a proper fear of the Lord, to place our hope again in that perfect mediator. Those four things will be on the screen behind me just to give you something to think about. Spend some time in prayer, thinking through these things, talking about them with God. Ask the Lord, reveal to me, where am I lacking? Where do I need to be refocused, God? Let me give this warning also. If you're not in the mediator, if you've not trusted in, in Jesus, turning from your sin, hoping in him and his cleansing, hoping in him to stand before you in your place before God, then this practice of communion is not, it's not for you. It's not safe for you. It would be a dangerous breach of protocol. And yet no one needs stay there. No one need remain outside of this grace. He welcomes, come to me. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. So we're going to take some just quiet time to focus, to think about these things. Um, after a few minutes, we'll the worship team will begin to play and, and we can stand and join in worship. And as we worship, the elements will be handed out, hang on to them and we'll partake in a few moments. But I just encourage you, spend a few minutes considering these things.